You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for $2.49 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Wajahat, in your own words, what is your book about? Uh, this book is a love letter to a country that often doesn't love the rest of us back. It's an elegy for the rest of us, and it's a self-help guide about how you too <laughs> can become an American. This week on Let Up, I'm speaking with Wajahat Ali, author of the book, Go Back to Where You Came From, and other helpful recommendations on how to be American. Wajahat is a natural storyteller, and though he would never say it, a gifted comedian. I had a wonderful time learning about his family and how he met his wife, and the way his life has been shaped by being Muslim in America. I hope you enjoy this conversation. I wanted to kick it off whether you wouldn't mind reading one or two of those email and responses that you write in the in these the lovely the helpful emails that i get sent on a daily basis these <laughs> wonderful warm suggestions of course i'd be honored that would be wonderful so you can kind of pick one or two sure potentially I'll, I'll, and then we can unpack them a bit i'll do the first two so these are emails that i get or refrains of emails i get almost on a daily basis and so this is uh Fan mail number one, go back to where you came from. My response, Fremont, California. I'd love to, but I can't afford the rent. I'm priced out. Damn you tech overlords. Another email I get all the time in different variations is the following. Fan mail number two, why don't you shut up and go fuck a goat, you Muslim terrorist? And my response, always with the goats and camels. Why limit my options? Two legs good, four legs good. But no, thank you. I'm happily married to a woman. Also, it's Muslim terrorist, unless you're referring to Muslim, which is a versatile cotton fabric originally hailing from Mosul, Iraq, and typically has not been associated with overt acts of violent extremism. Nonetheless, I appreciate the helpful recommendation. Well, let that just be an inkling as to how Wajahad takes something that's you know, awful and racist and bigoted and kind of twists it to become something incredibly funny by pushing it back on to that horrible person that sends you something like that. I, I, if you are a person of color or Muslim in the public arena, you will get emails like this every single day, my entire career. And I remember first and foremost, I started getting this when my email was used by my roommate at the time at UC Berkeley, who decided to put me 
as the media liaison for the UC Berkeley Muslim Students Association because I was on the board. And he, you know, he was very gifted on creating websites. So he just did it for free. He put my email there and then 9-11 happened. I was a 20-year-old senior about to turn 21, undeclared at UC Berkeley when the two towers fell. And overnight, even though the towers fell in New York and the terrorist act was done by 19 foreign hijackers, 15 from Saudi Arabia, I think two from UAE, one from Lebanon, one from Egypt, all the way across the country in California where I was at, we were getting hate mails and we were blamed for the terrorists who committed those violent acts, even though I'm an American-born citizen and my family members, my parents are immigrants from Pakistan. But bigots don't care. Racism flattens everyone. And so that's when I started getting these type of really ugly messages through email, right? Because I was the only email contact and people were blaming me and saying, why you Muslims did this? And then, you know, I kind of used that, that, that moment to respond to a few folks. And one person in particular, I remember it was a woman, she said, I'm sorry, I got very angry. I shouldn't have sent that email. It's just that I'm so hurt and in pain by what's happening. Why do the Muslims do this? And it became kind of like an opening for a back and forth because what email and social media in particular has done is it flattens all of us and essentializes us to our one trait. You become your last tweet, your last post, your last article, your last media appearance. You don't become a complex human who might have a particular political take on something, but also has kids and, and you know watches Netflix and eats Cheetos and might, you might agree with them on eight out of 10 things, right? You don't have to see the person. So you can inspire your worst demons to come out. But now what I've noticed, interestingly, in 2022, especially 2021, is that back in the day, they used to be anonymous. Now they're no longer anonymous. They use their full name. So there's a They don't even hide anymore. Ugh. There's like almost like a, an emboldened spirit, if you will. Mm. I wonder why. Well, that leads me to... So much of your work has always been about delving deeply into this country, racism, and what it's like, you know, for many different people's experiences. But when did you have that moment where, like, I have to write a book about this? I, th I think there's two parts of the question. One part is proactive in the sense that I've always enjoyed telling stories. And I want to really stress on enjoyment. I enjoyed making people laugh. I enjoyed telling stories. I was good at it. I discovered it when I was 10 years old in fifth grade when Mrs. Peterson asked me to write a one-page short story and I wrote a 10-page creative short story and I was a fat, awkward, shy kid and she made me recite the story in front of the homeroom class and I begged her not to because they always used to make fun of me because I was a fat kid. I recited the story, but I had them wrapped with attention. And I'm like, ah, I might have something here. So I always enjoyed it. That's key. Secondly, I think during the pandemic in particular, I've been trying to write a book for nine years. I just couldn't get it. I just couldn't get a narrative arc, right? And my agent's been on my ass. He goes, just, just write stories and we'll figure it out later. So when I was coming up with the outline, there was something about living through Nuseba, my daughter's cancer, and then the pandemic and the Trump years and thinking about the future in America where, you know, the personal is the political. And I realized, you know, maybe my take on things and maybe what I've been trying to write about, there will be now a receptive audience because I've always tried to connect the dots. And I thought, you know, maybe I can weave this narrative tale, do a type of a tongue-in-cheek memoir make it a little bit stylistically different where I can talk about both the, the American dream and the American nightmare. And let's see if I can use humor and some satire, also throw it in there and then end on hope. And then I realized that, you know, it took me, I always joke with people, it, it took me three months to write the first draft, which I blazed through it. But those three months, it took me 40 years to write, if that makes sense. Even though the first draft I blazed through in three months.
Well, I think you capture the beauty of life and of love with the darker side and that, I mean, that's also comedy, isn't it? I don't think we can have comedy without the knowledge of the darkness. Because the joy and tragedy and racism and love are also entwined in your book. And I feel like that story you start with about your very nerdy father, how he ended up coming to America seems mm. as such a, it's a framework for your own experiences in terms of those two, the kind of the dark and the light and how often they're so intertwined. My father had never told me that story until I interviewed him for this book. And I think it's a beautiful microcosm of America's generosity and America's viciousness, of its cruelty and its openness. My dad comes here with his brother, Sultan. I think they were 18 and 19. And he's like, what the hell is happening in this country? It was 66, he said he came in, right? Like Nixon is about to come around. There's Vietnam War. There's protests, the race riots. He's like, what? Where did I land? And he ditches the kurta and the shalar kameez for bell bottoms and hippie hair, which is hilarious because I thought my father was born bald in docker pants. And, you know, hardworking student, brilliant student, nerd, you know, applies to graduate school, gets a scholarship, you know, goes at, in Chicago at that time. And he says back in the day, it was pretty easy. He used to go to apply for extension. It wasn't that big of a line. It was a pretty simple process. And he says the immigration officer, he could just tell he, he just from the look, he looks him up and down. He could just tell this guy was going to be vicious. And he mutters to him, you Arabs only come here to America to fuck our American girls. I'm going to deny you deport. And my father's like, first of all, I'm not Arab. Second of all, what? And then he goes, but I have everything. Everything's here. And he goes, nope. And he just stamped it, my father said. He just didn't care and he looked away. So my father says, okay, uh, it's I only have like a little bit of time left. I have a deportation order. I have to get out of here. So he bought a one-way ticket back to Karachi. But he said, let me just try this last week to exhaust all my options. So he goes all around Chicago. You know, young man, doesn't have that much money, trying to get advice. And everyone says, according to him, you're effed. I don't know what to do here. He goes to this final law office, he says, in Hoffman Estates, which is a suburb in Chicago, but a random detail my father remembered. And he said, the attorney said, I can't do anything to help you. But he said there was another young man there, a young attorney who was waiting to, to, to get his bar results. And I think he was going to join that law firm. And he said, I've been hearing your case. And I think you, you, you don't cancel the ticket. Stay, because I think you actually apply for something called the Einstein visa. Visa is given to you know, those who have exceptional uh, merit and, and are researchers. And it was also given to Melania Trump. So my father was this brilliant student who was a researcher and got a scholarship. And Melania Trump posed naked on, on a fur rug in an airplane. Both of them had exceptional talents valued by the United States of America. So he said, pro bono. Since I can't practice law, I'll, I'll, I'll help you do this paperwork and I'll go with you to the immigration uh, uh, court. And so he goes with them, accompanies my father. And my father says there was a judge, a kindly judge. And my father assumes just from his name, last name, he think he was Jewish. And he said the judge just looked, looked at all the evidence, shook his head with disgust because kind of he kind of realized what had happened. And he said, I'm sorry this has happened to you. You, you can stay, provide me with the paperwork and, and we'll process your visa. And he says a few months later, expedited paperwork and boom. He got to stay in America where he eventually became a citizen. And so that's the story of American cruelty and American generosity. I mean, that's such a foundational family story. There's so many foundational stories. There's so many things that happen to us as individuals that we take for granted or we assume incorrectly that no one would care. And then once you just share your story, you realize 
Wow, that's profound. Well, there's a quote in your book I'm going to read back to you because it relates exactly to this. And you say, in America, if you aren't writing your story, your story will always be written for you. If you aren't telling your story, your story will always be told for you. And you obviously telling your own story and the story of your family. That's why I wanted to put it in the book because oftentimes there's almost this veil, especially with immigrant generations, where you just think your uncles and aunties, we call it, we say the elders in our communities are uncles and aunties, are like these Spartan, like perfect specimens who were like birthed with like, you know, hijabs and kufis and never sinned. And then you realize, no, they're interesting, complex people who actually had hopes and dreams and they laugh. Who would have thought? But you've been through a lot with your parents. I mean, there was, I was reading your book and then there's a part that I just, it was shocking because I didn't want you or them to have to go through a hardship. And mm. can you talk about what, what did happen? So you've told us about where you were on 9-11, a 20-year-old at Berkeley being confronted with what's happening with the world. But you had also had a kind of cataclysmic experience with your own family. Yeah, so, you know, 9-11 was a kind of baptism by fire, I always say, like for our generation, especially young Muslims in this country, but not specifically limited to Muslims. It was a uh, fork in the road. There was always a pre-9-11 and a post-9-11, but especially for our communities, I think Muslim communities are those who look Muslim-y. It was like, just, I mean, people forget how crazy those times were. America went so nuts that we changed the name of French fries to Freedom Fries because France originally was critical of the war on terror. That's how crazy it was for those who were listening and are young, right? And I was 20 and I was about to turn 21 and an undeclared student, senior year, trying to figure out what to do with the rest of my life. And, you know, I joke that my generation jokes, were, you know, individuals like me who are around my age were in that similar situation. We just joked that overnight we, we became the Muslim fireman and the Muslim Wikipedia. There's all this chaos. You have to go douse the fires and you have to explain Islam and explain Muslims and Sharia and Hakim Olajuwon and, and Hamas and Hamas and Iran and Iraq in front of a skeptical judge during executioner that even in 2021 now still holds our patriotism as suspect, right? So that's happening. And on a personal level now, a few months after 9-11, I'm about to graduate. My parents get arrested in something called Operation Cyberstorm. And the FBI comes down to the Bay Area. Robert Mueller at that time was the head of the FBI. Teams up with Microsoft and says that we have uncovered the lar largest piracy ring ever and swept up like two dozen people. And my parents' names were on the front page of the FBI. My parents were sleeping in their old man Costco sleeping uniform at 6 a.m. And dozens of like armed agents came, dragged them out of bed. Parents had no idea what the hell was happening. Then my father... Read the 31 count indictment, almost passed out. I got a call from my aunt. I was at UC Berkeley. She says, Yeah, you should come home. Your parents have been arrested. I'm like, What? Why did they get swept up? And I joke about this in the book all the time. Like, all this weird, terrible luck that happened to my family is they were in the same office complex as apparently this was happening. They did a separate business with Microsoft, which they had finished. They had moved on. They were like, hey, this was good business. It was like a licensing thing with educational software. Business was successful. Everyone made money. They took that money and started their own website. And so Microsoft, because of the timing and the location and Microsoft was involved, they cast a wide net and also got my parents in on a separate count. But it doesn't matter because as far as the media is concerned, the headline leads is the story. If you aren't telling your story, your story is being told to you by others. And so all the people saw was Pakistani couple 
swept up in piracy ring. And Microsoft then put this absurd number of like of damages at 100 million from the educational business. It had nothing to do with piracy. So all people saw was scammers, Pakistani immigrant family, defrauds Microsoft of 100 million part of piracy ring, which was not the case either. So everyone thought I was sitting on $100 million. And I remember I called my parents. I'm like, listen, I have no idea what you guys did or didn't do. But if you guys got this $100 million, I could really use it right now. And so that then became this overnight wake-up call where we became them. When I mentioned that it was up to then, I was protected. Suburban Muslim Pakistani American kid going to college. My parents had their ups and downs in business. Sometimes they had money, sometimes they didn't. But still, I was mostly in a cocoon. But that's when I decided I was going to be living also on, not when I said, but fate decided that I would be living in the other America, the America of the poor, of the incarcerated, of the black and brown folks. So it was such a schizophrenic Twilight Zone existence from that moment on because I had one foot in privileged Mm -hmm. suburban America, UC Berkeley student, had just gone into law school, and another foot where I'm visiting both my parents in jail at the same time trying to raise funds. The house was gone. The money's gone. I'm in debt. My credit shot to hell. And my life, at least for my 20s, I thought it was over because now I'm bankrupt. And my parents went to jail for a year. That's how long it took me to finally raise the funds to get them out on bail. This insane case went on for only almost eight and a half years. They decided not to take the plea bargain because they, they said, we didn't do anything. We want to fight. And I said, okay, I could, I could see that. You know, what? It's like the crucible, the scene in the crucible. It's my name. My name. So, like, you know, in hindsight, they probably should have just taken the plea agreement. They're going against Microsoft and the government. But I said, okay, if you really feel you haven't done anything, fight. They rebuild their life. I graduated from law school. I'm a writer. Everyone who was initially cruel in the community says, look at that. The Ali's came out. Okay, good for them. This is done. They became nice again. And I'm about to turn 30, I think. And the, the case was on appeal. And I got a call from the attorney. Very bad news. Sorry, which had they lost their they lost their case. And right then, my father gets arrested after being out for like seven and a half years of rebuilding their life. And then the judge tells my mom, "You have six months. I'll give you six months to self-report." And then you know, I was staying at home. I was a poor writer. It was the recession. I was starting my career. People knew me as a writer, as a playwright, as an attorney. All my friends said, "Which well, the guy who made it?" But in my life. It was chaos, right? So that's the schizophrenic Twilight Zone experience that privately I was going through the hell experienced by millions of Americans. But publicly, if I had told you at that time, Angela, what I was going through, you'd be like, whoa, Waj, you're crushing it, Waj. You just wrote a play and I saw you in the New York Times. And I'm like, no, no, I'm about to be homeless. And whenever I used to say this to people, it was it was so it was like it was like a horror movie because no one used to believe me. So that's why I stopped telling people because they're like, whoa, Waj, you're just silly. And so that's that's a part of the story that I have never really shared in depth. You asked me, and I gave you in five minutes uh, a, a little nugget. I hope that was helpful. Well, while this was happening, while you had your friends saying, you know, things look so great from the outside, you've just, you know, been in the New York Times, you're on the rise, while you were having such a personal crisis, through that period, were you writing with a comedic voice still, or did you find that that part had was lost a little i think i was i was writing with a comedic voice even though so my personality according to people who knew me and and i can look back upon myself with some fresh objective eyes you know from the ages of they said from 21 to like 27 i became very hard and i think that i became hardened through time through 
Yeah, because I had to survive. I had to survive. Yeah. It was survival. Like it was a fight flight my entire twenties. And and so, but at the same time, despite my efforts to harden myself, my mom said I was forcing myself to be something I'm not. Because she said your natural disposition is to be friendly and generous with people and to be funny. And it used to just crack through all the time. And it came through through my writing, especially in my play. So mm-hmm. in my play, when I wrote, which I wrote after my parents got out, which ended up being a very restorative exercise, this, this play that I had started writing for my short story writing class in, at UC Berkeley, then the, that play got delayed because of my parents' arrest. And then my professor, Ishmael Reed, came back and said, keep writing the play. So that became the play of the Domestic Crusaders, which then mm-hmm. became like a small hit. And, the, and if you people read the play, they're always shocked by the amount of humor that's in the play. And the play is about a Pakistani Muslim American family living in the in the shadow in the aftermath of 9-11. And even though there's a lot of like, you know, a lot of deep stuff that's talked about, there's just a lot of humor. So I think that's how I've always processed life is through the, the two masks of theater, the 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 sadness and the and the and the joker, right? And like you said earlier before, there is there's we oftentimes have to have we have to find joy through the pain or else life becomes unbearable. You know, so you laugh or cry. You sometimes do both. I'm not one for crying, so I laugh. And through laughter, I think through humor, if used wisely, it can be a very powerful weapon. And growing up, who did you look to to for, you know, other comedic voices to emulate? Or along your way, who has influenced you in terms of... Oh, that's a good question. You know, developing your own voice. For me, it was, believe it or not, stand-up comedy and stand-up comedians in the sense that we early on really like my friend circles and I got into like Monty Python and Mel Brooks and very early on, perhaps too early, Eddie Murphy's stand-up comedy routines. And then once I got into Eddie Murphy at an early age, I brought in George Carlin. And then it was my circle of friends, especially at Bellarmine High School, where every day we used to eat at the hill, just the mound of grass, but we just call it the hill. And I just came to like every day I tried to make them laugh so hard that at least one person would choke on their food or like spit milk. And I was very successful. And I remember that kind of became honed more as a skill with improv comedy. Uh, 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 there was an improv comedy troupe, Sanguine Humors. We took ourselves pretty seriously. We like studied every practice every week and we did shows and I got in. And then in college, that then became the sketch comedy troupe that I did for fun. And so like there has always been an appreciation for comedy and comedians. I do not consider myself a comedian or a stand-up co- a comedian, I, but I always appreciated it as an art form. And so I always indulged as a fan. And then I tried to practice just, you know, for fun. And apparently I was successful to the point where in high school, my friends and my friends' parents thought I would either grow up to be a film director, storyteller, or a stand-up comedian. And I ended up becoming a writer and attorney. But, you know, comedy has played a very huge role in my life, not just as a fan and observer, but how I have used that. And that's how I got my wife. Everyone just jokes. They're like, Sarah literally could have had anybody. And she married you when you were completely broke, when your parents were in jail, when you had no money, when your credit was shot to hell. And people ask Sarah, like, what did you see in the guy? And she goes, he made me laugh. That's right. So I'm like, all right. So so, so, like, I feel like humor has been very helpful to me in understanding this universe, my place in the universe uh, as a weapon to booby trap some of this racist stereotypes to fight back against bullies and to get a wife. 
How did you meet her then? I was broke as broke in the Bay. Even though everyone thought I was crushing it. I was like 31. Uh, right before my parents got, or, excuse me, 29. Right before my parents got arrested again. And my wife, Sarah, was like doing one of these 47 fellowships that doctors do. She had just been divorced for the second time, which was her, its own scarlet letter and trauma in South Asian Muslim communities, right? And she was about to move to D.C., where she was going to take a job at a healthcare clinic. And so we had our small circle of friends just met, met up, and we just got along, and I made her laugh. And she was like, every guy wanted her. Even though she just got divorced again, every guy wanted her. So we, you know, my G-chat game, I must say, Angela. <laughs> Strong. I, I'll take on anyone. My G-chat game, I'm Cyrano de Bergerac. I crush instant messenger deep cut for you kids in the 90s and my gchat game i can i anyone bring on anyone i'll take on anyone right and so we used to just talk as friends and then she said after like a month of talking he goes i don't talk to guys like this like late at night like i'm interested in you which is usually what happens with women they you often have said hey idiot i like you and i'm like what i'm fat you're like no you haven't been fat for 10 years they're like oh you know when you're fat you're always a fat kid so she told me she liked me i freaked out because my parents I think, you know, we still know what was happening with the case. I was living at home. I was broke. And I was like, my life is chaos. I can't tell you more. And so we said, we'll just stay friends. She moves to D.C. I'm in the Bay Area. I end up going to D.C. on and off to do a job, a think tank report called Fear, Inc. In D.C., our small circle of friends merge. And then that becomes my crew. And on and off, a lot of people said, you know, you and Sarah have something. You guys, I think, you know, she's looking for someone. You're looking somewhere. I'm like, no, we're just friends. Well, we're just friends. My parents end up going to jail again. It, I'm 31. I just had my 31st birthday. It's Thanksgiving, about a few days after Thanksgiving. I have a near-death experience, which I mentioned in the book. And I survived that near-death experience. And, and, and I'll tell you, the near-death experience very quickly was I had this condition called supraventricular tachycardia where the heart rate jumps up randomly. Or you sound like a tabla remix of like Bitches Brew, right? Like That's like your heart and you end up passing out. It's just a condition that I had. It got worse in the 20s, especially with all the stress. It was very manageable. But in the 20s, it just started accelerating, but still manageable. I should have gone this heart surgery called ablation. But I'm like, eh, you really want to do heart surgery in their 20s when you don't need to? So I said, no reason. I go to the friggin' 24-hour fitness for a lame-ass elliptical workout because I had 20 minutes. I'm doing this lame-ass elliptical workout. My heart rate jumps up. I pass out. I wake up. My heart rate was at 230. So they rush me to the hospital. They give me all the drugs. Nothing works. Now, if your heart rate's at 230 resting for a long period of time, bad things happen. Congestive heart failure happens. So now I'm having congestive heart failure at the age of 31, sweating profusely in my nasty-ass Hanes undershirt and my oversized <laughs> gym shorts and sneakers. And my corner of the emergency room is the most popping place, surrounded by nurses and doctors who are more freaked out than I am. If you're ever in the hospital and the healthcare professionals are more terrified than you, that's a sign bad things are happening. So they cardioverted me three times and cardioversion is uh, defibrillation, three, two, one, clear. Whoa. None of them work. If, if anyone who's listening who's been in a near-death situation, you, you, you'll empathize. You just know. Your body knows. That's all I can say. You know how you have a sixth sense? You have elders sometimes who say, I'm going to go next week. You're like, what are you talking about? And then they die. It, it's just a thing sense. Your body knows, you know, like the universe gives you this, this special power. So I knew my time was running out. I had pulmonary edema. I was choking on my own phlegm. 
everything was out of sync. My heart rate was still at 230. I, I went through the whole negotiation with God. You know, you, you think audit of my entire life, regrets, prayers. And then finally it gave to the point where I said, I've had a very good life. And if this is my exit, so be it. I can't complain. And I made peace with my exit. My only regret, Angela, was I'm like, I'm dying alone. Not literally alone. Like I'm, I, I didn't invest yeah. in a relationship, in a family. I was too afraid. Well, not afraid, but I'm like, who would marry me? Number one. And then number two, I said, it's irresponsible of me to marry anyone because why would I bring this baggage into some woman's life? That, that was my martyrdom. But then as I, was, as I was literally dying, I said, damn, I should have invested in a relationship. That's the one regret I had. And I swear to God, after that regret, my heart rate stabilized. And then, wow. and then I can't help but be a storyteller and be poetic about this. And I'm like, that must be a sign. And so, you know, I, had, I felt like I, had a, I got extra time. And then you can't help but be changed coming from that experience. And I looked at the world a bit differently. I was very grateful. And I said, you know, maybe I should put myself out there. And this, that's what started me thinking, maybe I should talk to Sarah. And so like a loser sitting in California, nine years ago at the age of, I think, what, 31, I called up a mutual friend, Uzma, who's in DC. And I said, Uzma, can you ask Sarah if I can call her later tonight with the intention of maybe talking to her to maybe go out? And she's like, what the hell's wrong with you? This is not the 18th century. Just call her, man. This is not a Jane Austen novel. I'm like, just do it. And she goes, you're an idiot. She's going to say yes. Fine. She like, calls me back an hour later. She goes, just call her tonight. So we, it's hella awkward, as you can imagine. We talked the first night three hours. We talked the second night three hours. We talked the third night three hours. And all I'll say is this. When you know, you know. And very romantically, at the beginning of the fourth conversation, I said, listen, I love you. I want to marry you. Uh, so you want to do this or not? Let's go. And <laughs> she was like, what? And then a month <laughs> later, we eloped and got married. Oh, my goodness. It's I love hearing the story again because just the... Ah, you know, like you say, the joy, there's so much joy. And we're so glad you're you're here alive with us. Always. I got very lucky in life. You know, the thing is this, the book, I think what, you know, you, you, you throw the book out there in the universe and you just pray, right? You're like, at the end of the day, I can only control what's in my hands. I can't control how people respond to it. But I've been very lucky and, and gratified to the, the response I've gotten back is, you know, I think people appreciate the blunt truth and the, the pain and the challenges of both life and living in America right now that I don't try to shy away from, but it's done with a lot of humor and it, it ends with hope. And it's not a type of hallmark hope or a type of like, let me just be a Hollywood studio and give you this fake bow tie ending. I hope the the hope is earned, you know? And, and so people, people are like, I didn't expect to, to, for the book to be hopeful and, and humorous. And that, that makes me happy. Yeah, it's, well, it's a, a brilliant book, but it's also a human book. And I think you show the humanity in you and your family and other people that you choose to write about in such a full way that we want to be in their orbit, you know, when things are going bad or, or not going well. Your check is in the mail, Angela, or, <laughs> or, or I'll Venmo you. These kids like the Venmo. That's right. That's right. So my last question to everyone is what lights you up? Mm, that's a very good question. It's a, you know, I, I have to be very honest with you. You asked that question and I got an immediate answer in my mind. So I have to honor it, even though it's going to sound so cliched. Kids, my kids, my daughter, and I mentioned this in the book towards the end, she's a stage four cancer survivor and a mm. full liver transplant recipient who has just turned five. And this is now the near only almost the two year anniversary 
of her ringing the bell. For those of you who don't know, a ringing the bell means you're cancer-free. She rang the bell in January two years ago. And we were like, well, what the hell are we going to do with the rest of our life? Because, you know, our last year was just, you can imagine being hospital parents. And then a month later, pandemic. And so we've been in lockdown for three years. And so, you know, but we sit there also and every day, my wife and I both independently together, at least one of us, it's, it's not scripted. It's not scheduled. We make a comment. Wow, look at her. Look at that. She's alive. Her hair's come back full of life. You'll never be able to tell this is a cancerous cancer. She went through stage four cancer, almost died. Her brother, older brother, Ibrahim, sweet boy, always taking care of her. Our post-pandemic baby, Khadija, crazy, wildling, just like the boss who like was born, yeah, during the pandemic, I think, a month before the pandemic. You know, all of them are happy. They're, they're in lockdown. They do virtual school because my daughter's immunosuppressed. They should be miserable. They should be mean. They should be cruel. But they're, you know, full of life and joy, and they find ways to entertain each other and, and, and entertain us. So... I, you know, despite everything that happens, uh, you see them running around giggling and I'm like, you got to keep fighting. You got to keep fighting for that. Thank you so much for listening to my conversation with Wajahad Ali. His book, Go Back to Where You Came From, is available now and you can purchase it via the link on our website, lituppodcast.com. In two weeks, I'm speaking with my friend, the writer, podcaster, actor, and comedian, Maeve Higgins, about her new book, Tell Everyone on This Train, I Love Them. Lit Up is a podcast from Sugar23. It's hosted by me, Angela Ledgerwood, and is produced by Liam Billingham, a real goofball. <laughs> Mike Mayer and Michael Sugar are the executive producers. The theme music is by Andre Rodofsky. Until next time, bye everyone. Save big on brunch for mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson natural boneless chicken breasts for $2.49 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.